I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Devil's Advocate. A young attorney has the chance of a lifetime. Milton Chadwick Waters. We want you to come to New York. All expenses, first class, travel and lodging, you and your wife. Oh my God. He will enter a place of wealth and ambition. We've got 40 partners vested at the moment. In addition to our corporate clients, we're currently representing about 25 foreign countries. He's got you scheduled for 15 minutes, so make the most of it. John Milton. Kevin Lomax. Well, what's that like? One day you're putting them away, next day you're setting them free. Takes a little getting used to. Pays better though, doesn't it? Welcome to Babylon, Ma. Speak of the devil. <laughs> a world of power and seduction. Who's that with the senator? Controlled by one man. <laughs> I swear he can hear us. Hell, he can smell us. He will make your dreams come true. Want to come upstairs and now? He will grant your fondest wish. I'm just warming my hands on your talent. You know what I see? I see the future of this law firm. He knows your greatest fear. Milton is into everything. Arms brokering, chemical weapons, toxic waste, money laundering for the Eastern Bloc. I mean, it goes on and on. I don't like it here, Kevin. And he knows the price of your soul. Let's make a baby. Who are you? Oh, I have so many names. I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. God likes to watch. He's an absentee landlord. Keanu Reeves. He's always been there. I know that now. Al Pacino. As God sleeps late. We will win. <laughs> It's my time now. <laughs> the Devil's Advocate. This is a commissioned episode for Greg Downing, and to discuss it, we have to establish two things. One is that the 1990s was the home of wildly successful legal thrillers at the cinema. These things made better bank than the disaster movie blockbusters of that era, considering the far more modest budgets as tense star vehicles, nearly all based on John Grisham novels that people would read on airplanes. That was very popular at the time. Let's give you an example. Volcano in 1998. Rubbish film starring Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche. It took $122 million at the box office, but it cost... 90 million dollars so it's another one of those scenarios of limping past the finishing line just about breaking even but probably not after advertising the firm in 1993 took 270 million dollars but the tom cruise star vehicle only cost 40 million dollars as opposed to say picking a name out of a hat mission impossible dead reckoning part one which is a really good film that i far prefer to the firm but costs hundreds of millions of dollars but yeah, the legal thriller, that is a solid multiplier for a more self-restrained Hollywood that we may someday soon see a return to. And uh, one could argue that you're comparing apples and oranges there because that's this is Tom Cruise mm -hmm. versus Tommy Lee Jones. While I accept they're both Toms, they don't command the same... Well, amount. no, the However, volcano is come for the effects, not, yeah, not, the, not the, the star. star. Yeah. yeah, but fundamentally what you're... What you're 
pointing out there is that we have double the take, mm. but half the budget. Bingo. Yeah. And uh, one thing that we uh, talked about when we were doing the Coen Brothers was that people lament that there aren't any great crime films or thrillers anymore. All of this stuff moved to TV. The cheaper stuff to do, the more performance-based stuff, and the things which actually work better long-form rather than in the uh, constraints of a two-hour to two-and-a-half-hour film, uh, moved to TV and were widely seen and celebrated during the golden age of TV that we just experienced. Uh, they're not in the cinema anymore because the cinema changed. And I feel, again, after this disastrous summer of blockbusters that just cost so much and so few people are turning up for, that Hollywood has got to change. If they carry on like this, everyone there is going to be broke. There have been two cinema chains in the UK that have gone into administration recently. Shit. So... It's they have to bear in mind that the the infrastructure and the ecosystem around getting films into multiplexes mm. is not what it was. Yeah, well, that really sucks, folks. So uh, let's hope that Hollywood managed to adapt soon. Now, you might remember how many films about crime emerged around this period. We talked about that during the Coen Brothers, uh, spurred on by the successes of Scorsese and Tarantino. But accompanying them was at least one big legal thriller per year of the other side of that. So you do the crime and then you go to court about it. In 1990, there was Presumed Innocent. In 1992, there was My Cousin Vinny and A Few Good Men. In 1993, there was Philadelphia and The Pelican Brief and the aforementioned The Firm. In 1994, there was The Client in Disclosure. In 1995, there was Just Cause. In 1996, there was The Chamber and A Time to Kill. In 1997, there was The Rainmaker and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And in 1998, there was Devil's Advocate. And I honestly feel like uh, 1998 was the last year of straight legal thrillers. After that, there was a heavy supernatural element introduced with Devil's Advocate. Then they added sci-fi with Bicentennial Man, or rather, they added courtroom drama to a robot film. In 1999, and that was in 1999, and they added Human Interest with Aaron Brockovich in 2000. It's a, it's a courtroom drama, but it's a civil claims court, and it's a lot of it's about Erin herself. And it's real life. And it's, of course, real life, so it's human interest. So, like, the Harvey Milk-type stuff, the Oscar bait, it became about, like, Veronica Guerin. It became about writers and lawyers who end up in, in real hot water. We're trying to expose terrible stuff. And there was uh, Michael Clayton by Tony Gilroy, which I consider to be the absolute last film where an evil businessman says the bad things that he's done, and Michael goes, you just told me, and then holds up the cassette recorder and goes, I just caught you on tape saying you did the bad thing. Obviously, Judy Hopps does it with a carrot in Zootopia, but that was from a naive time when we believed that evil businessmen saying they did evil things wouldn't get them the position of commander-in-chief of the United States. Indeed. The insider. Yeah, again, that's Jeffrey Wigand. He was a whistleblower for big tobacco. Yeah, and the tobacco industry went, yeah, and so what? Will destroy you. But obviously, cigarette advertising changed as a result. But you see what I mean? Like, uh, it became less about... Matthew McConaughey in a mahogany courtroom saying things about terrible stuff that happens to a, a little girl and then saying, now imagine that she's white and just exposing how racist the jury is. And like that, yes, I d I'm glad what I did and I hope they burn in hell. That kind of like, you're out of order. This whole courtroom's out of order. We want the truth. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. 
No truth handler, you! Bah! I deride your truth handling abilities! Will you get to the point? Yes! Only I could have executed such a masterpiece of electoral fraud. And I have the records to prove it! Here, just look at these! Each one a work of Machiavellian art! But why? Because you need me, Springfield. Your guilty conscience may force you to vote Democratic, but deep down inside you secretly long for a cold-hearted Republican to lower taxes, brutalize criminals, and rule you like a king. That's why I did this. To protect you from yourselves! Now, if you don't mind, I have a city to run. Bailiffs, place the mayor under arrest. What? Oh, yes. All that stuff I did. It became about, yeah, but who's Erin Brockovich when she goes home? Whereas, see, see what I mean? Like, the, the, the whole, like, turning the courtroom into a dynamic place where cinema happens was very much during this period, even though, uh, like, Witness was 1985 or something. So they began in the 80s, but they peaked in the 90s. Mm. And then they just kind of stopped. And, of course, there was Liar Liar, which is Jim Carrey's funniest legal comedy. Of course, another big reason for the passing of the courtroom thriller as industry darling genre was the advancement of digital FX, highlighted by how jaw-dropping The Matrix was in 1999, which brings us to the second thing that I need everyone to focus on. Because believe it or not, younger listeners, there was actually a time when Keanu Reeves was kind of a joke. Nobody took Keanu's acting seriously. His screen presence was ridiculed by snooty critics. His films didn't do all that well, and he was seen largely as a himbo. And that's being nice about it. People were under the impression that he really was Ted of Bill and Ted, or Todd of Parenthood, ignoring how wildly entertaining he was in those films. I agree with that completely. I will just say, I liked Keanu Reeves before it was cool. I had, I had one celebrity crush when I was a kid, and it was like one dude celebrity crush, and it was Keanu Reeves. I had posters of him all over my walls. I adored him in Bill and Ted. I loved him in Parenthood. There are... Okay, including Todd then, there are four films in which I can take his accent seriously, and that's Ted in Bill and Ted, Parenthood, uh, John Wick, and The Matrix. Those he sounds like Keanu Reeves. Whenever they make him do an accent that's not his, it all goes to pot. <laughs> Point Break or Speed had people thinking he was an action meathead. Johnny Monomic and Chain Reaction made people think he would say yes to every bad sci-fi script that came his way, which is why no one was excited for The Matrix. Dracula and Much Ado About Nothing made people think handling oldie English with his surfer accent was enough to ruin the tone. Which it wasn't. If I were a dog, I would bite. Which it wasn't, but it was hilarious. Music! Those animals! animals. Bloody wolves chase me through some blue inferno! <laughs> I know where the bastard sleeps. After we've finished with Harrison Ford, can we do a track down of any Keanu Reeves films we might have missed? Uh, yes. A Walk in the Clouds. I've never seen it. Because he was also in those sweet romantic comedy type things. And then Dude's was... done everything. He has yeah. range. And there was The Lake House. I think in the late 90s, he did The Watcher and The Gift back to back. And he was a villain in those. And I've very rarely seen Keanu Reeves as a villain and gone, that's great. 
And his southern accent in this film, from a man ostensibly raised in Florida, is endlessly mimicable, just a shade shy of Benoit Blanc's foghorn leghorn drawl. And while this lacks the dignity of John Wick, he accesses a similar temperature of intensity along the way. It's just that he's funny as Kevin Lomax, unintentionally, and he isn't funny as John Wick until it's intentional. Indeed. This was directed by Taylor Hackford, and his was one of the first director's commentaries I ever sat through as DVD was emerging that year. It was, this was the year of DVD. It was also co-written by the aforementioned Tony Gilroy, who adapted the screenplays for the Bourne trilogy. I say adapted, like they're, they're very loosely based on those books. Uh, he wrote Rogue One, and he recently made reputedly the best Star Wars thing ever with Andor. We've seen three and a half episodes of that, and it's it's hard going, folks. Devil's Advocate was also the second major film to star a fresh new actress from South Africa, Charlize Theron, who had first appeared in Two Days in the Valley, and here plays Reeves's wife. And those two lucky bastards get to be very physically intimate on screen in this extremely randy movie. Oh, side note, folks. There is some uncomfortable stuff coming up, like uncomfortable sexual stuff, uncomfortable. The film begins with a court case about child molestation. And it only intensifies from yeah. there. So if that is enough to make you go, Ugh, yeah, I'll skip this go one. with that instinct. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. This is kind of School of Movies Extreme, and we're going to be making fun of this film, although I do still really like it. Reeves plays Kevin Lomax, a hotshot young defense attorney who has never lost a case. As a result of this, he is headhunted by a lucrative Manhattan law firm who wants to see what he can do for them. You're a programmer for a respectable law firm. This quickly results in Kevin and his smoking hot wife, Mary Ann, who works as a car repo agent, being gifted an astonishing spacious Central Park Overlook apartment in the company's residential building. But Mary Ann starts getting very lonely and afraid as weird things start happening, all the while Kevin is staying late at work and chewing the fat with his extremely creepy and outgoing new boss, John Milton, a rather on-the-nose name <laughs> character. Not quite as on the nose as uh, Robert De Niro in Angel Heart, who plays <clears throat> Lou Cipher. John Milton is played by Al Pacino, who delivers an astonishing hoo-ha third-act monologue that is worth watching the whole film to see. And I will stand by that. Even if you think this is terrible, it's something to see. Okay, so like we said, the opening gambit here is that Kevin has got an effectively unwinnable case. Uh, he has got a guy in the dock who has been accused of molesting a teenage schoolgirl played by Heather Matarazzo, and he's a defense attorney, which is the entire subtext of this movie. He, uh, he is playing devil's advocate. He is defending someone who should not be defended. Everyone's entitled to defense, but then when you look at the fact that as she's this traumatized girl is describing what he did to her. This guy's fucking jacking it in the court and fingering the desk. 
At that point, Kevin himself is filled with such an overabundance of loathing for this guy, for himself, for his whole position. He should be having a Jerry Maguire at this stage. He almost is. He goes into the bathroom. I mean, you could say this entire movie is that. Yeah. So he asks for a reset. This, by the way, is actually what (laughs) Jerry Maguire is about. Not the you complete me stuff that everyone kind of leans on on a very surface level reading of that film. Mm. He, uh, so Kevin asks for a recess, disappears to the bathroom, stares at himself in the mirror with an expression of, what the fuck am I doing? I was disgusted with my place in the world. But then so he has an interaction with uh, a court reporter mm-hmm. and he ends this scene by flashing himself a very fake grin in the mirror. An animalistic grimace. And going back out to do his job. Or what he perceives his job to be. Like I said, he has never lost a case and he can feel this one. He is Not only is he going to lose, but to win, he has to do something absolutely despicable. And so he buries any morality he might have and goes out and, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, turns the whole thing into a, this girl is lying because she doesn't like this teacher and she pressured other kids into uh, to stepping forwards and saying that it happened to them and that actually isn't true and that one particular fact can cast enough of a shadow of doubt over the girl whom he character assassinates to throw the whole case out. Mm. Indeed. He, he makes it clear to the jury that she is lying about one element of all this, and that therefore means that it is possible that she's lying about all of it, and therefore you can't convict this man based on that. However, Keanu Reeves' performance <laughs> takes the form of, I'm just a simple hyper chicken, not one of them big city types, lawyer routines, where he starts ranting about how this girl called her teacher in the notes to her friends in class a huge hog beast disgusting pig monster so his whole defense is like she made this up because he found a note where she was making fun of him i bet he eats a thousand pancakes in the morning (laughs) oh excuse me i was wrong disgusting hog beast And what's amazing is that a whole courtroom just goes. I <gasps> know, <laughs> as if that's like, an extreme. Like that's an extreme line. Oh yeah, no. For and, any for a kid for to drag it to a court proceeding for a note. Then being there's found? some. He's talking about some game that they used to play with, like the kids would like feel each other up called special places. And look, I guess the fucking prosecutor's doing bong rips because none of this is getting thrown out, and the the judge keeps going like. Ah! Allow it, but Dude, this judge is a fan of Keanu Reeves' mm-hmm. character, Kevin whatever the fuck. Kevin Lomax. I'll move that she pay him $10,000 <laughs> for calling him fat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Keanu's right about that. <laughs> Good job, Kevin Lomax. Dude, yeah, it's, it's really like he's really washing his face off in the sink. He's mm-hmm. looking in the mirror like, are you really going to do this, boy? Are you going <laughs> to defend this pig monster? He probably did eat a thousand pancakes and you know it. He diddled that girl while he ate those thousand pancakes, and you're going to defend him. How do you think them girls learn special places? <laughs> Disgusting pig monsters. Hey, uh, Lomax, thanks for getting me off. You want to go eat a split 2,000 pancakes <laughs> with me? 
Because I definitely need at least 1,000 pancakes. I mean, you, you heard the testimony in there. I need 1,000 pancakes. Uh, could you uh, go and have these on an entire IHOP? I mean, let's buy a franchise. You're a lawyer, right? You got money, right? So he gets him off. And- you fucking hogbees. That is way too many pancakes, hogbees. Are you out of here? I own half this IOP. <laughs> so fuck you, Lomax. Are you out of your hog beast pancake eating mine? I don't care if there's none for anyone else. I'm eating the pancakes. It's the kind of thing that takes place in courtroom dramas to make them more dramatic and to make them more entertaining. But honestly, it feels like in, in, in real life, it would be appropriate for the judge, at the very least, to say, simmer down. Mm, indeed. Well, the, the way he does it and the fact that he deliberately gets the, the, the nickname wrong so that he can correct himself. Disgusting pig monster. Extend this conversation a little bit longer. I think part of what he's doing here, this is never explicitly stated, but I think part of this is he is trying to evoke defensive feelings in every member of that jury who ever got teased by a local teenager. Mm. And chances are that will be quite a few of them. And he turns the whole room against this girl who ends up a a crying mess. And Heather Montarazzo, by the way, is an excellent actress and gets given all the creepy roles. I feel so bad for her in this, though. And her father wants to strangle Kevin. Rightly so. With good reason. Rightly so. So, Kevin walks out and... It's noteworthy that you pointed out Marianne is talking to someone on the phone. Mm. Uh, she's, she's saying, just make that payment. We won't be able to have to repossess your car. She's trying to help the people that she's... You know, she, she's a bailiff. Like she, She's going to be sending in big, strong men to take away their stuff because they defaulted on a loan. That's a, that's a horrible job to be in, and it doesn't seem like Marianne particularly likes it. But... She's in that courtroom watching Kevin destroy a girl and at no point does she go, oh my God, who am I married to? Like, the fact that Marianne is complicit in this from the beginning is potentially why she winds up where she is in terms of the guilt overwhelming her. Um, yeah, I mean, I my guess is seeing the kind of person that she is naturally and hearing the l- tiny little snippets that we get about her background. She mm. grew up in a in a, a stressful family from the sounds of things. Mm-hmm. Kevin has obviously given her the this is my job. I have to stay detached from from the the ethics of it. It's it's all about the facts and what I can prove and and all that kind of stuff. And she's focusing on the fact that she's married to an extremely handsome hotshot yeah. who's very good at what he does. Indeed. Not the lives he's ruining. Yeah, and she buys into that the hit of success as well. The Okay, we now forget about everything that just happened there. Let's go to the bar and get drunk. By the end of the film, she's muttering to herself, we drank it all down. Like, you know, we, we were bewitched by this. But it, it doesn't just start here with, the, uh, with the, all of the New York-related stuff. No. They were getting by, not fantastically, but they were doing well on a lifestyle that is beguiling 
But questionable. But questionable. Mm, yeah. Which is the I mean, best way of putting it. The, the, the celebration in the bar after this court case, there is a very deliberate juxtaposition of the class elements of where they are in Florida and where they end up in New York. Because it's the shit kicker type of bar that they're in and the, the music they're listening to and ultimately Mary Ann. Her, she, is, she is portrayed as lovely and sweet and extremely beautiful but somewhat snootily in a, a kind of a classless way you're trying to say trailer trash without saying trailer i'm trying trash. to say trailer trash without saying trailer trash because you, you, you can't put that label on Carlise theron it's just it doesn't work suggestion charlie's theron playing the 90s rogue Ooh, yeah. would have done so much of a better job than anna packing but she'd have to have the physical powers of uh, uh, Ms. Marvel. Mm. That's or Carol Ms. Marvel. the character that she played in Hitchcock. Indeed. That's what I was thinking too. Hitchcock. Hancock. Hitch stars Will Smith. Who was in Hancock? I've never seen anything like this. Like, the crew on yeah. SVU, like, goes out after a victory. And, you know, Ra- Raul Esparza, like, buys everyone a glass of wine. Ice-T's, like, always kind of got a beer or whatever. But never... Anything like this. This is outrageous drinking. No one on on those celebratory evenings, I'm guessing, no one there is eating their wife's ass on the <laughs> dance floor because Keanu gets a nose full. Dude, he's like dancing with Charlize there and he's like, whoops, dropped my wallet and like bends down and starts chowing on her ass cheeks. And you're just like. Dude, you're in the middle of a dance floor. I'm going to pretend your ass is a thousand pancakes. <laughs> Call me a disgusting hog beast. Do it. Call me a disgusting hog beast. See what happens. <laughs> Betcha I get real hungry. I mean, this movie is sexual in nature. I'll tell you that much. And I think, Steve, you've sort of cracked the nut as to why perverts like me and you yep. in middle school loved this movie. I'm glad you left me out of that. Well, yeah. I liked it for the production design. So we segue to New York, where he has been offered a role of a man who has to choose a jury for a particular case. Like, they're starting him small. And I was immediately struck here by how heavenly and angelic they make the architecture of New York that they choose to film in this early stage. It's very, like... The the law courts are cathedral-like, and the cathedrals are also very, like, it's it's very Sistine Chapel. Mm. Well, that ties in with something that um, uh, John says later. The law is the new priesthood. Yeah. We look to the law as the authority. We grow up being told to trust policemen and to trust in law and the justice system. And then when we reach a certain age, we start to think, hang on a second, there's all these flaws. There's all of these people getting punished when they shouldn't be, and all of these people who aren't getting punished when they should be. And it seems like the extremely rich can avoid punishment altogether. Something hinky's going on. And also we meet uh, Kevin's mom, uh, who's in a Baptist church. And it was only this time that I saw that the gospel choir she's singing in are really listless. Like, there's no oomph to this particular thing. It's not, like, stirring. It's, it's weak and frail. It feels antiquated. 
and it's juxtaposed against the the raw power that uh, Milton's firm seems to operate with. Mm-hmm. As in, they are merrily forging ahead, doing whatever they like, while the good people are opposing them quietly in a church off to one side so as not to get in the way. It does seem to present us with a world where if the Lord is acting through people, he's up against the ropes. And the fact that the devil in this treats it as a boxing match. Title fight! Round 20. Oh, I'm ready to work. Suggests that the unseen Lord is flagging. The way he's treating it is the same way that Kevin treats the law. It's not actually about good and evil. It's not actually about justice and fairness. It's whether or not he can win. The actress who plays is Kevin's mom is all right, but this was a role that should have gone to Beth Grant. Uh, that's a sparkle motion woman from uh, Donnie Darko. She's been in a Keanu Reeves uh, film before. She was, um, I don't know, the lady who's like, I gotta jump out, Annie, and then the uh, steps of the bus explode and it makes Sandra Bullock cry. It's a role and a situation that called for her. Now, when Pacino comes along and, and uh, introduces himself to Keanu Reeves, it's this, he takes him out on this absurd rooftop reflecting pool thing, which is on like in the middle or the top bit of a skyscraper that has no safety rail and is just a sheer vertical drop hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet to the street below with water cascading over the side. And the uh, Hackford was uh, uh, keen to point out in the commentary that um, there's a shot of uh, Milton's feet as he's walking around this place with Kevin and he's wearing shoes with Cuban heels, which make them look like goat hooves. He's got hooves. But he spends the first act of this film, then all of the second act, feeling Kevin out, just trying to like prod at him and go, yeah, show me your morality if it exists. Mm. What do you feel about this? One of the first things that Kevin admits to him as well, which I I've got to say, I had missed every time I've seen this film, this is the first time I've actually noticed it, is that he says to John that he's good at picking sympathetic juries <laughs> and then concedes that the reason for this is that while he was working as a prosecutor for uh, the uh, Florida district attorney, which, as John points out, does not make great money. There was a hole in the wall between the men's bathroom and the jury's uh, deliberating room. So he would listen to the juries talking about the cases that were on, not necessarily to get insight into that particular case, or at least that's the way I read it, but listening what things are important to juries. What do they bring up over and over again? What do they, what points do they hook onto? What do they contradict each other with? What can he then use as weak points to uh, exploit their, the cracks in their uh, approach and, and to to direct them in the way he wants them to go. So he gets an emotional response from them and twists it. Yeah. Bending to your strength. As Pacino rightly points out, he's kind of addicted to this. It's the... He calls up a bunch of heady, hedonistic things that could uh, easily prove to be addictive. The first snort of uh, a line of cocaine. That walk into a strange girl's bedroom, which made me go, huh. Okay, yeah. When At the age when I saw Devil's Advocate, that was mine. The third one, he says, is a smile from a jury, which means that... And he hooks this on Kevin very early. Vanity! That Kevin is arrogant 
and likes the fact that he can manipulate people. Even though it's like, well, I've got to get this thing done, I've got to do the... The winning streak is almost as incidental to the fact that he just wants to get this. Mm. Yeah. Feeling. What he's what he describes and it's intriguing that Kevin has this this broke single mother Florida background. But what he's describing is something that I I I see time and time again in uh in politicians and people who grew up in wealthy entitled families and were not seen as children. That's part of what this is about. That's part of what that narcissism is about. You didn't see me when I was a kid, you will fucking see me now. The middle section of this film is flabby and long. It's engaging, and I've, I've never watched Devil's Advocate and gone, oh, fucking hell, come on. But if I was going to edit it down, mm. there is a lot of legal stuff that Kevin has to do, which isn't all that interesting to me. For, because I don't care about legal yeah, things. Yeah, I think the, the bit that you picked up on was the um, the health code violation yeah. with Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo's character. He's a voodoo witch a doctor. And it, it, there's, a, there's a point at which Kevin effectively tries to have the case dismissed, and I believe he is eventually successful in doing this. He tries to have the case dismissed on the grounds that you wouldn't quibble this if it was a kosher butcher... So why are you quibbling it here? The the goat is like if you if your issue is that the goat is going to be there's health elements to the eating of the meat that's not going to happen because that's not what this is about. If your issue is with the safety and care of the goat, why are you focusing on the manner of its slaughter? So he kind of brings it down to this single point and presents the judge with a, uh, a, a an alternative a comparison to say it's it's really no different to this and the it's judge religious says, freedom the judge says i know something about kosher law <laughs> and uh, and kevin takes this or he's he's obviously using this as a well yes this is why i think you will agree with me but that the the judge's expression at that point almost feels like well this is all a waste of time <laughs> um which is kind of how i feel about this middle section yeah The more engaging stuff is the mysterious, supernatural, what the hell's going on here, setup. Now, We Hate Movies got confused about this. They were asking why Jeffrey Jones's character, Eddie Barzoon, is threatening the devil with legal action. Uh, as in, he might blow the whistle. You know, he's like, well, the next time the uh, Federal uh, Bureau of Investigation phones me up, I might pick up the phone. Yeah, effectively saying, I'm a real problem to you, John Milton. You better have me killed as soon as possible. Which, you know, would happen if you were trying to threaten someone like Bobby Kotick, who actually did genuinely threaten to have a woman killed once. But it makes no sense to threaten the devil. Even Dream, Morpheus in Sandman, had to be on his best behaviour when he went to hell and challenged the devil. Which leads me to believe that Eddie Barzoon doesn't actually know that he's working for the devil. No, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Leads me to question, who does know that? Because there's demons all over the place in this film. Kevin's working morning, noon and night. Marianne is at home playing the housewife. I'm reminded of Marge Simpson when they moved to 
uh, the place where Homer got the job for Hank Scorpio. Ah, yes. And so she tries decorating, but uh, it's a it's a swanky New York apartment. She's not even vaguely used to these kind of environs, and she has nothing but uh, the rich wives of rich lawyers to uh, who live in the same building chat with about this stuff and it's abundantly clear with every exchange that she's meek and shy and getting meeker and shyer by the day uh, while these ladies are brassy and vain and shallow and very confident in themselves contrasting her misgivings and seem to have boiled down their entire life to three options work play or breed they don't help her as well that's a real key thing that that when she tries to connect with them they're all older than her their husbands have all been with the firm longer than hers has there is occasional mention of how quickly they've been given perks the apartment uh kevin potentially being lined up for a partnership way ahead of anybody else which means that there's also this underpinning of is there good old-fashioned sniping and jealousy and Mm. envy going on here she's got imposter syndrome out the wazoo everything feels wrong about them being there even before everything also starts feeling wrong about everything else. Yeah, and she has no faith in being able to, like, the decorating becomes this kind of stress point because she doesn't trust her own instincts when it comes to what this apartment is going to look like. She tries various different colour combinations and ends up, when, when she is at her lowest point, if you look at how the apartment is settled, every room is a different bright block colour. Nothing coordinates, nothing matches, nothing feel... It doesn't feel like a home. Everything's always in process. There's shelves being put up and taken down again, and yet bathrooms aren't cleaned. At one point, Kevin comes in and commits a brown crime, and they just brick up the bathroom. <laughs> well, we have enough. Just We'll never use this one again. Let's move on. I'm going to only use the seventh bathroom down the hall from now on. Mm, indeed. But yeah, she's, she's... I should never have gone for those nachos <laughs> with my boss. <laughs> she gets so out of depth with um, the, the shift of expectations on her to make all the decisions. Whatever flaws she and Kevin had in, in their previous life um, and whatever they were whatever evil teat they were sucking from, it is pretty apparent that they are very close and that their relationship is very much about shared experience. And once they get to New York, that fractures and pulls apart with alarming ease. Mm. And Marianne also starts seeing demons. Uh, one of the uh, ladies who's the she's seemingly the most close with, first off makes her very uncomfortable by uh, forcing her in a dressing room to feel her breast implants which is cruel. But then when she's trying on a dress, her face goes, and it's like, she goes kind of like a goblin from Moria for just a half second. And then there's this actually quite effective, like like, like hissing sound as the dress travels down her body, obscuring her face. And then you can see sort of these almost skeletal hands moving under her skin and caressing her and suggesting that she's into all kinds of freaky demon shit. But they're also in the same room as the wife of Eddie Barzoon, the guy played by Jeffrey Jones that was threatening the devil that I mentioned earlier. Which made me wonder, if Jeffrey Jones doesn't know he's working for Satan, but the friend of his wife is definitely a demon, is his wife also a demon and she does know? Right. Here's my take on this. 
because if you look at how shocked the two women look when Marianne drops everything and runs out of the dressing room, mm -hmm. I don't think they know they look like that. I think what's happening is Marianne's guilt is causing her to see what is underneath the surface of all of this, nah. whether it is physically there or not. The other significant time is right near the end, the end of Marianne, where uh, one of the secretaries is just brushing her hair and showing her what she looks like in the mirror, and then her face goes, see, and then turns into Bilbo going after the ring. Mm. Um, now, that one has a bit of a question mark over it because Pam, the secretary, mm. is clearly in on it. Oh, yeah. Because, first of all, the expression on her face when they come to get Marianne is almost like, yeah. And secondly, when Kevin runs away from that whole scenario, she's the one waiting outside the hospital yeah. going, welcome, as though her Two orders words. were, send Marianne over the edge, which she very efficiently does. Yeah. So there's this whole load of stuff where Charlize Theron dyes her hair into this sort of brown bob, as opposed to the sort of the long curly golden locks that she started with. And meanwhile, Kevin at the office and uh, during a uh, sleazy-ass rich people party starts to uh, get the hots for a, a young Connie Nelson whose name is Christabella and is this fiery, seductress redhead hanging around the uh, offices. Obviously, very hard at work and on the phone speaking Italian. But it seems like she has a thing for Kevin and Kevin has a thing for her, but it's not really spoken about. And then later on, John and her and another lady are about to go up to John's penthouse and John's like, hey, how about you come up with me? And and the two ladies are sort of like, hey, how about you do that to uh, Kevin? And then he's like, oh, I've got to look back at, at this bridge troll he's married to. <laughs> this, uh, you know, this dowdy old frump, a young Charlize Theron. This is an important scene because Kevin's mom is visiting New York today and meeting John Milton in the lift gives her the willies. And we will be coming back to giving Kevin's mom the willies. And around about this stage, with both work and play seemingly barred to her, Marianne decides, baby. And since this was not only inspired by Rosemary's Baby, it's almost a retread of Rosemary's Baby by Roman Polanski. Young couple move into an apartment, lots of creepy neighbours, really interested in the fact that Rosemary is pregnant. Turns out they're devil worshippers, and this is the Antichrist. Ariasta loves that movie. Okay, so it's, it's something that was brought up very early in the film, when they first uh, meet up with Kevin's mother, and she is telling them she doesn't want him to go to New York. Uh, she suspects it's Marianne's idea, and... Uh, there's obviously some tension between the two of them. This big city lady, she's really not, uh, is, is taking my son away from me. Um, but Marianne's response to that is, we'd better give her some grandkids quick so she'll get off my back. Mm. Um, and that is clearly something that, that has been a thread throughout their relationship. She mentions to, the, um, to somebody that she's talking to later, I can't remember whether it's the women or whether it's John, that their office back in at their home in Florida was sort of divided in two and she 
had her side and he had his side but it was there was always this agreement that when they got pregnant that that would become the nursery mm. so it is so obviously something that they have planned for a long time but just never been it's never been the right time to make the jump on it one of the things that really upsets her uh, when she starts to uh, get to breaking point is uh, she finds out one of her sisters is pregnant again which makes her feel even worse for not being able to come up with offspring this should be a cause for celebration but it is just a further erosion of her own self-worth it makes her a tragic character and to her credit though the film moves in very broad strokes Charlize Theron puts a lot of intensity and what feels like authenticity into the role but the, yes, the writers and the director kind of go, right, let's, let's take that concept and let's just turn that dial all the way up to 11. Marianne has an extremely crass, blunt vision of a baby stealing her ovaries. Then claims Milton came to her apartment and they had sex. And from the sounds of it, it was not entirely consensual. And the fact that he was with Kevin all morning makes Kevin believe that his wife has gone mad. What happens to her is very, very cruel and when you watch the whole film, it's, it's abundantly clear that uh, Milton is trying to drive a wedge between the two of them so that Kevin doesn't have anyone to fall back on and anyone who might have a good thought in their head. He's kind of nudging her towards Christabella the whole time. There's a point, very specifically, where Kevin and Marianne try to have sex to make a baby and specifically in her words, try to make love in order to make a baby, but she keeps morphing into Christabella. So it's uh, Charlize Theron, then it's Connie Nelson, then it's Charlize Theron, then it's Connie Nelson, and Kevin doesn't know what the hell is going on until she recognizes. I specifically like the line, where are you? Illustrating that she has noticed that in a place of intimacy, he's not with her at that stage. So the Cullen case is Craig T. Nelson as a stand-in for Donald Trump to the point where I actually genuinely think they filmed some stuff in Trump Towers because there is a gold LeMay room absolutely festooned with jewels. It looks so gaudy and tacky. And I feel like they could have made it and made it look like Trump or they could just have asked Trump, can we film in your bedroom? And Trump probably asked his master, am I allowed to be in a movie where fictionally I'm in league with you? And his master said, ah, it's a little too on the nose. So Trump declined to be definitely I know we believe in hiding in, in plain sight, but that's probably pushing it a bit too yeah. far. Wait, wait for a few more years before we hide in plain sight. 15 minutes, almost up, Hammer! <laughs> <laughs> Send in Marky Mark. Craig T. Nelson is acting like the most guilty motherfucker ever. His wife and stepson are dead, murdered. He's implicated. Uh, he's only got his stepdaughter left. Did he also kill the maid? Because he definitely yes, did this shit. He did, yeah. The, the girl is his actual daughter, I believe. Oh, jeez. He's carrying around a 7.65mm Walther PPK like he's fucking James Bond as opposed to Cullen the family annihilating real estate mogul. Kevin takes this Chekhov's gun off him and pockets it till the end of the film. And then at Eddie Barzoon's funeral, his date is his own daughter. And these demon women are watching her from behind as he strokes her naked back. And going, isn't she pretty? Like all they want to do is consume. 
You know who's one of the great beauties of the world, according to everybody, and I helped create her? Who? Ivanka. My she daughter, is. Ivanka. Yeah. She's six feet tall. She's got the best body. Yeah, she's hot. I've said that if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> Stop it. Oh, it's so weird. Start pumping your bunions. I'm coming. I'm the dumbest. Who flame throw your fuck shit to bunions. Flame your crew quicker than Trump fucks his youngest. Now face the flame fuckers. Your fame and fate's going. And this is around about the point where Eddie Barzoon, played by Jeffrey Jones, threatens John and then ends up coming a cropper on his run to a bunch of hobos with demon faces. And again, it's the surprise at these hobos with demon faces and the fact that he threatened John that makes me think that not only Eddie, but a hell of a lot of these uh, lawyers don't know they are working for the literal devil. Mm. If they did, there'd be much more kind of a hushed, oh, you know that John doesn't like this or that. But there's one major reason why John wouldn't tell them all. And that is because he likes to see their arrogance cultivated. He, he gives this lengthy speech about how Eddie Barzoon is the poster child for the next millennium. And he fucking is. He only cares about what's happening in the immediate moment. The hobos demand he gives them his watch. And at this point, you're being threatened by a bunch of hobos. Give him your watch. And he shouts, are you crazy? I like this watch. That is a man who has a hill to die on. Mm, indeed. And he indeed dies on it. Eddie Barzoon, Eddie Barzoon. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I nursed him through two divorces, a cocaine rehab, and a pregnant reception. God's creature, right? God's special creature? <laughs> and I've warned him, Kevin. I've warned him every step of the way. Watching him bounce around like a fucking game, like a wind-up toy. Like 250 pounds of self-serving greed on wheels. The next thousand years is right around the corner, Kevin. And Eddie Barzoon, take a good look. Excuse me. Because he's the poster child for the next millennium. These people, it's no mystery where they come from. You sharpen the human appetite to the point where it can split atoms with its desire. You build egos the size of cathedrals, fiber-optically connect the world to every eager impulse, <laughs> grease even the dullest dreams with these dollar-green, gold-plated fantasies until every human becomes an aspiring emperor, becomes his own god. And where can you go from there? Hey, wrong way! Yeah, yeah. Fuck you! And as we're scrambling from one deal to the next, who's got his eye on the planet? As the air thickens, the water sours. Even the bee's honey takes on the metallic taste of radioactivity. And it just keeps coming faster and faster. There's no chance to think, to prepare. It's buy futures, sell futures, when there is no future. We got a runaway train, boy. We got a billion Eddie Barzoons all jogging into the future. Every one of them getting ready to fist fuck God's ex-planet, lick their fingers clean as they reach out toward their pristine kybernetic keyboards to tote up their fucking billable hours. And then it hits home. You gotta pay your own way, Eddie. It's a little late in the game to buy out now. Give me your watch. What? I like this watch. You think you're just gonna have to try and take it? Your belly's too full, your dick is sore, your eyes 
eyes are bloodshot, and you're screaming for someone to help. But guess what? There's no one there. You're all alone, Eddie. You're God's special little creature. Part of the keeping all of his Satan origins and everything completely under wraps, it, it does make sense when you're trying to portray this as uh, a network of evil that spreads around the world. Yeah. Because here's the thing, when when the devil is trying to get people to do bad things in, in the fictional context, it's always really stupid when they turn up and go, here's what I want you to do. By the way, I'm the devil, and eventually you're going to get punished for all eternity. Who, and I know people do in fiction, but who really is going to go, yeah, that sounds fine, sign me up. No, that's not how it works. What happens is, here's some stuff. Do you like that stuff? It's good, isn't it? Here's the thing you have to do to keep getting that stuff, but it's only little. First one's free. Say small. And then by degrees, they erode your morality. Exactly. And then ultimately, by the time you learn how deep you're in, it's too late. Hmm. You don't... uh, It's it's related and tangential to you don't sign up to be in a cult. You sign up because you are in a bad situation and they're offering you a good situation. Absolutely. Nobody goes into an abusive relationship. Yeah. (laughs) Shut up. Do what I tell you. I'm not interested. These are just some of the things you'll be hearing if you answered this ad. I'm an idiot and I don't care about anyone but myself. P.S. No dogs. That's good. What's yours? I'm going to murder you. You bloody woman. Marianne gets committed because she has seemingly been horribly self-harming. Her mind has snapped like a dry reed. Kevin is extremely distressed, but still goes to the funeral of his most hated adversary, Eddie Barzoon, who hated him, because he has to show his face. Like This is the point where Kevin is practically irredeemable. Stay with your wife. Even John says, go home, stay with your wife, leave this case, maybe it's your time to lose tempting him to get, just cultivate that arrogance and, and say, you know, nope, I'm going to carry on with this case. I'm not going to back out because I don't lose. I will win this one. So he leaves Marianne in a psychiatric hospital, goes across town, goes to this awful funeral, packed with demons, including Cullen and his daughter. Cullen strokes her back and then turns into Mr. Geddes from the beginning. The huge hog beast himself. Which is more of an impressive transformation if you're Craig T. Nelson rather than Donald Trump. They're the same picture. And then Mitch Weaver from the Justice Department turns up to tell him they found Geddes with the body of a little girl in his trunk. What Kevin did put her there. Thus reminding Kevin of the last time he felt a twinge of morality. And uh, just to sort, of, sort of reminds him of how much from this poison chalice he has been gorging yeah. since then. Jiminy Cricket at this point is lying on his back, wheezing his last, desperately trying to get a message to Kevin on the way out. Oh, yeah, you can't be doing stuff like that. That's pure evil. <laughs> That's the new version of Jiminy in my head. After all those Pinocchios, it's Puss in Boots version. It is worth remembering, I didn't realise this little tiny detail until I went through the soundtrack, which is very overlooked. This was James Newton Howard coming into his prime. He was about to do The Sixth Sense. 
but one of the final tracks is called Ring, because Kevin takes off his wedding ring when he's in the bathroom at the beginning, filled with self-loathing, suggesting if he's going to back up Geddes, he has to be able to do it out of the sight of God and the promise he made to his wife, the only good person in this film. So then there's the what would probably be the most dramatic scene in most of those other legal thrillers that I talked about, the Pelican Brief, the client, the firm, uh, where uh, one of the, this Fed who was talking to Eddie Barzoon starts trying to ply Kevin for information on what's going on there, talks about the network of evil that uh, um, John's had set up and how the Feds are investigating them. And honestly, it's like the idea of the, F the Federal Bureau of Investigation looking into what turns out to be the devil. That's a whole other movie. It really is, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a side legal drama that we did not end up getting. It's not even a it's a police procedural where just it gets darker and darker. And there were a lot of these around this time because remember the X-Files was a huge deal in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that where this this is where it overreaches and oh, no, overreaches is not quite the way of putting it. This is where it, it descends into pure Al Pacino shrieking fiction because the the things that Weaver is outlining, these are the pies that John has fingers in. Got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. Uh, fossil fuels and chemical weapons and nuclear waste and here's all this horrible shit that's going on in the world. Oh, just uh, if, if you align that list with a list of all the bills that Trump signed when he was first in and office it all and runs... sort of, yeah, you can dump toxic waste <laughs> in those rivers, no problemo, signed the president. But the idea that this all runs back to one individual who is pulling all of these strings it, it kind of ignores what John himself says, which is, I only set the stage. I don't make people do any of this. They just do it. And ultimately, that is the more terrifying thing. It's not that there is one entity making all of this bad shit happen in the world. It's that there are thousands and thousands of people getting rich off all of this terrible shit happening in the world, and that just continues. Yeah. And I think it gets so operatic and silly that your chances of actually reaching the people who are guzzling out of this poison chalice and in a way that might do some good seem, falls by the wayside, and it falls only to the poor people with no power to watch this film and go, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's what they do. You know, it's what That's they what do. So, yeah, uh, in the middle of all of this, uh, Kevin crosses the street while the uh, federal agent's like, you come back, I've got to talk to you more about John's many, many crimes. And then John, in this cathedral, holds his dirty, dirty finger over the font and then goes, which makes a car appear out of nowhere. And the FBI agent's like, no! And then the car hits him. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said to you, dude, this was within months of Austin Powers first coming out. This is New York. You look three ways before you cross the street in New York. <laughs> wow, look at the size of that screen <laughs> on the sound file. Sorry, yeah. folks. 
But you see what I mean? It's very over the top. And, and like, you know, something like The Firm, you do get one or two people get killed by shady types and assassins are hired for corporate espionage and things. And it's just, they were really taking it to 11 for this one. So Kevin goes to visit Mary Ann, who is a total wreck and is now... Uh, in a mental institution, hospital. She's at, I believe, she's at Mount Sinai Hospital because right. there's one of the things that this area was sold to Kevin on. Like everybody lives in this building. The uh, the work building is just across the way. You've got Mount Sinai Hospital. There's really good schools. You're right next to the park. It's it's all about you know this this environment has everything you could possibly need. You don't need to leave it. <sighs> one of several locations claimed to be the biblical Mount Sinai, the place where according to the Torah, uh, the Bible, and the Quran, Moses received the Ten Commandments. That's what the significance of Mount Sinai is. Thou shalt not, we fucking shalt. Again, very distressingly, I'm not going to go into any detail here, but uh, uh, Marianne is finally driven absolutely mad by the uh, uh, the extent of this and the, the inescapability of these demons surrounding them. This is when she tells Kevin, you know, we, we took all... Uh, is this in the church? We, we drank it all. We didn't stop. I wanted to do this. It's, and- yeah, it's when she's being admitted that she has that speech. But the this section is sort of... It's all about how alone she is, that, that even Kevin now has handed her over to them in yeah. her mind. She doesn't even have that connection anymore. Um, it, everything has been cut away from her until she's got nothing left. She also somehow manages to witness Eddie Barzoon's beating. And even though it is Jeffrey Jones who turned out to be a real-life creep and she should be going, get in there, um, she's traumatised by that. She is afflicted by the Lovecraftian... What if you were the only person in the world who saw the truth and everybody else was claiming you were telling lies, you'd be the only sane person in a world of the crazy. So when she says, I'm not crazy, that's what that entails. And uh, tragically here, she takes her life. Keanu takes his acting to 12 for his reaction, which (laughs) is understandable. That's where I'd be for the purposes of a film. Uh, it's a little too high, but it does also prepare us for the fact that John's going to take us to 13. Yes, this is true. It does step up gradually. Like you said, this whole... Step it up, son! <laughs> You're not going to hold on to that fury! This whole third act is operatic. It's technically the epilogue, but it is the third act. Because if you consider that everything we just talked about regarding the legal stuff in New York is one very, very long act two that's the length of an entire movie on its own. Because this thing's like two hours and... Was it 40 minutes or 24 minutes? It is 144 minutes, so that is is two hours, 24. It cost 57 million. It made 153 million. That is a tidy profit. Um, As Kevin walks out of this incredibly traumatising scene... Uh, he is greeted by the secretary that we mentioned before who Pam. drove uh, Pam, the secretary who successfully monster-faced Paul Marianne over the edge. And it is a heartbreaking scene. I feel like they went overboard to make it less powerful. Knowing what was coming next, they really did not want everyone's brains dwelling on what had just happened. But before he goes, his mom drops the bomb on him that she was previously in New York when she was a young girl, met a young Al Pacino who recited the Bible to her. He deflowered her, thus Kevin. I mean, you wondered yourself, the money, the apartment, all the attention, everything out of nowhere. Say it! Milton, he's your father. He's your father. 
go on, go on along, you know, he'll, he'll figure it all out for you. And Kevin walks out into a deserted Manhattan with this really ominous, you know, choral music playing. And it's just this long Manhattan street going up and up and through and through. And I know it's an effect. I'm sure it's an effect. Or a matte painting. Or digital. Probably digital. But I still don't know how they did this. It's quite astonishing as a shot. Do they ever have that sort of New York at four in the morning when the sun is up but nobody's really out yet? There's always people out. There's always people walking. There's always... They do call it the city that never sleeps. There's always taxis moving. It's, it's, it's eerie. And it sets you up for this final situation. The final confrontation... And this is the part that I said it is watch, worth watching the entire film for. You were right about one thing, Kevin. I have been watching. Couldn't help myself. Watching. Waiting. But I'm no puppeteer, Kevin. I don't make things happen. Doesn't work like that. What did you do to Marianne? Free will. It's like butterfly wings. Once touched, they never get off the ground. No. I only set the stage. You pull your own strings. What did you do to Marianne? A gun? In here? God damn it! What did you do to my wife? Well, on a scale of one to ten, ten being the most depraved act of sexual theater known to man, one being your average Friday night run-through at the Lomax's household, I'd say, not to be immodest, Marianne and I got it on at about... Bavon. Fuck you! It's the final fig leaf. Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? Never lost a case. Why? Why do you think? Because you're so fucking good. Yeah. But why? Because you're my father. I'm a little more than that, Kevin. Maybe I knew it. She knew it. She knew it, so you destroyed her. You blaming me for Marianne? Oh, I hope you're kidding. Marianne, you could have saved her anytime you like. All she wanted was love. Hey, you were too busy. That's a lie. Marianne in New York? Face it, you started looking to better deal her the minute you got here. That's not true. You don't know what we had. You don't know anything about it. Hey, I'm on your side. You're a liar! I told you to take care of your wife. What did I say? The world would understand. Didn't I say that? What did you do? You know what scares me, John? I leave the case, she gets better, and then I hate her for it. Remember? I know what you did. You set me up. Who told you to pull out all the stops on Mr. Gettys? Who made that choice? It's entrapment. You set me up. And more yet. The direction you took. Popes, swamis, snake handlers, all feeding at the same trough. Whose ideas were those? You played me! It was a test, your test! And Colin, knowing he was guilty, seeing those pictures, 
What did you do? You put that lying bitch on the stand. You brought me in. You put me there. You made her lie. I don't do that, Kevin. That day on the subway, what did I say to you? What were my words to you? Maybe it was your time to lose. You didn't think so. Lose? I don't lose. I win. I win. I'm a lawyer. That's my job. That's what I do. I rest my case. I memorized every fucking word of this, and I still have it in there rattling around in my head. Because it's, it's a performance with a capital P, and it's very eccentric and overblown. And when you're a teenager, people ranting about theology and good and evil and God and the devil is like catnip. I think if you've been raised to be lightly religious, like lapsed Catholics turned C of E, when you hit your teens and find what's always been treated as gospel, getting challenged with edgy writing like Preacher and Good Omens and Sandman and The Prophecy and Crimson and Kevin Smith's Dogma and Bill Hicks, it feels like a profound revelation. But you do kind of grow out of it. Back to John Milton's literal revelation to Kevin. What that revelation does to Kevin is it punctures the balloon of I am here and here is terrible, but I am here because I am good. I am good at what I do and I was uh, headhunted for my talent and that's why I've been given all of this wonderful stuff but also why all of this terrible stuff has happened and then he finds out that he's actually been watched for years and cultivated like a pig for slaughter although not for slaughter um like the opposite of slaughter but we'll get to that um by his father which means he didn't do any of this by himself all of this including potentially he what he's perceived as his own talent has all been down to uh, his um, paternity. Yeah, which plays with his arrogance and vanity Absolutely. because he's like, this didn't come from me, it came from my special blood. So it's messing with Kevin, not the morality of all of this, oh, no. just the feeling that, uh, that, that you maybe... You I'm not awesome after all? Kevin, look at what you've been doing! <laughs> you mean these came from Jedi powers? <laughs> dude not from a jedi <laughs> also he's not a pig for slaughter he is a racing horse stud yes indeed now milton maintains a couple of intriguing points i'm not going to say interesting but uh, you could potentially uh make whole classes and theses off the claims he makes here he says i only set the stage i don't make things happen you pull your own strings. The idea being that this is not puppeteered. This is not fated. I am not making everyone do this. It puts the responsibility on humans. But setting the stage is in italics because it does mean that John gets to offer God knows what, literally, to anyone he so chooses to corrupt. And they have to make a decision as to whether to say yes or no to it. Mm -hmm. And he wants them to make that decision. It won't matter to him if he makes them. Yeah. But I would say there's an awful lot of not informed consent going on there. Yeah. Vanity is definitely my favorite sin. Kevin, it's so basic. Self-love, the all-natural opiate. 
You know, it's not that you didn't care for Mary Ann, Kevin. It's just that you were a little bit more involved with someone else. Yourself. I did it all. I let her go. Ah, oh, don't be too hard on yourself, Kevin. You wanted something more, believe me. I left her behind and just kept going. You cannot keep punishing yourself, Kevin. It's awesome how far you've come. I didn't make it easy. Couldn't. Not for you. Or your sister. Christabella. Beautiful Christ? Half-sister, to be exact. Don't let him scare you, eh? Kevin, I've had so many children. I've had so many disappointments. Mistake after mistake. And then there's you. The two of you. What do you want from me? I want you to be yourself. You know, I'll tell you, boy, guilt like a bag of fucking bricks. All you gotta do, set it down. I know what you're going through. I've been there. Just come here. Come here. Yeah, let it go. Yeah. I, I can't do that. Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who? in their right mind, Kevin, could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine. All of it, Kevin! All of it. Mine. A lot of that ties in with John's own arrogance about what he is able to do with Absolutely. This is what Kevin takes after without knowing it. A humanist at this point would be saying, God and the morality that's been handed down from there, irrelevant. Be good to each other. And if he's really a fan of man, why would he want to tempt people to be shitty to each other? Mm. This is also uh, a, uh, a scenario where I really wish 
God could get a word in edgeways and present a counterpoint. That is not what I said. You weren't listening. In this world where the devil is personified, one assumes that God can do that too. So the devil wants to be a grampy, wants to watch a lot of Star Trek, wants to enjoy his lawn. And what better way to do that but making your son and daughter have sex and produce the Antichrist? Hoping that the incest factor doesn't mean that their eyes are so close together, the left eye is in the right socket and the right eye is in the left socket. Some genetic mutation due to inbreeding here. I don't get it. What does their family tree look like? A stump? He does say he's had so many children and so many disappointments. And do you know who that made me think of? Humper Dido? Well, yeah, <laughs> there is that. Um, ego. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah, Ego and Guardians 2, both of them are self-righteous. Mm. Both of them are, are very keen on shouting about how hard they've had it. Indeed. And you, and passing their view of the world onto their offspring. Who doesn't want to know. And making them support their universe-dominating Shitty worldview. And shitty worldview, literally in Ego's case. But yeah, the whole point was that Kevin's vanity was the setup he had to accept the poison chalice and free will which is one thing that uh, john mentions it's like butterfly wings is crucial to this kevin has to volunteer again informed consent yeah. free will true free will is knowing all of the variables that it is possible to know so that you can make an informed choice and if you're this deep into law which, in, in uh, John's words, puts them into everything, you're also going to be familiar with contract law, which is deliberately misleading and presents every person who has to sign a contract with so much extraneous information that binds them in ways they don't know. In America, but yes. But Satan's always been fond of contracts. Indeed. Uh, there are laws in the UK, I don't know whether other countries have them too, it probably originates in the EU, would be my guess, that uh, agreements and um, things that people are going to be agreeing to which is what agreements are, you idiot child. Um, <laughs> the agreements. The agreements be... that people are all agreeing to. <laughs> agreements have to be in as plain language as possible, and you can't do the thing where you like the the phrase fine print hmm. comes from the the technique of writing really key stuff in tiny, tiny letters so that people will miss it. And you can't do that. Like if you agreed to Apple's terms and conditions and then you find yourself the middle part of a human centipede. Yeah, indeed. Like, we know most people don't read them, but they do have to be presented in a way that is relatively easy to read and understand. But I have to volunteer. Free will, it is a bitch. Kevin, I need a family. I need help. I'm busy. Millennium's coming, son. Title five, round 20. <laughs> oh, I'm ready to work. What do you say, kid? What are you offering? How about the thing you love the most? Smile from a jury. Ooh, that cold courtroom just giving itself over, bending to your strength. I get that on my own. Not like this. I take the bricks out of the briefcase. 
I give you pleasure. No strings. Freedom, baby, is never having to say you're sorry. In the Bible, you lose. We're destined to lose, Dad. Well, consider the source, son. Besides, we're going to write our own book. Chapter one. Right here. This altar. This moment. This whole film is a clumsy, blunt metaphor. The whole thing is symbolic. You just need to sort of wave a hand at, at New York, specifically the sort of Wall Street area, casually, and you've made your point already about it becoming fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It has become a dwelling place of demons. And it's accurate. We have allowed the powerful extreme minority to not only create hell on earth, but to appoint themselves as emperors of all they survey. And this ties in with the whole Eddie Barzoon. Eddie Barzoon didn't know he was dealing with the devil. It's not some grand conspiracy. It's not a carefully planned conspiracy theory baiting grand scheme where everyone's in contact and everyone's agreeing with what they're going to do as part of this thing. This is just what happens when the greedy and the supremely powerful exploit loopholes without reprisal for long enough. If all of them are each running their own simultaneous grifts, very little conspiracy is actually required. They don't need to coordinate this shit. It's just kind of how late-stage capitalism works. Mm. You, you deal with your shit, I'll deal with my shit. They're entrepreneurs of the highest order. The system supports it because it has been engineered that way by each powerful individual calibrating whatever they can affect to benefit them at the expense of those who are easy to trample, namely us, the masses. But where John fucks up is undervaluing love. He says, overrated, biochemically no different than eating large quantities of chocolate. He sees the shedding of the constraints of love and compassion as a selling point rather than the most terrible of prices. That's how his contract is set up. You don't have to be constrained by love anymore. We can just get into a hedonistic fuck fantasy for the rest of time. That's ultimately where the devil is always going to be wrong by undervaluing love. His crime is his punishment. He cannot truly empathize. He says he does, but when you truly empathize, you want good things to happen to people, not bad things. Another thing it's rather important to remember about the devil from mythology, he lies. And this one may even be telling the truth as he sees it, but he's lying to himself. The problem is that Marianne got to Kevin at a time when they could experience love before all of this shit. His mother obviously being part of the church, does a lot of work for the church, it's been in his life. Kevin is not able to entirely extract that from his decision making. And frankly, while the never-ending fuck fantasy is tempting to him, he's also seen what happened to Marianne and we've we've seen how utterly wrecked that made him. Like oh, no! It took everything that actually mattered away from him. So at this point, while he's got, as you pointed out, he's got Marianne's blood still on his shirt and these two are telling him, forget her. And he can't. 
So even though Kevin is one of the shittiest people in all of cinema, he does ultimately decide, no, you know what? Fuck this. And if I don't say yes, your plans are scuppered. And you deliberately killed Marianne just to remove her from my life so that I would say yes to this. So you know what, Dad? Fuck you. And he blows his brains out with Chekhov's gun, which creates this incredibly epic scene where Pacino screams up a storm and fire comes out of every orifice. There's this carving, this statue on the wall that's sort of now moving with loads of models in there. You know, just, again, a hedonistic fuck fantasy. It's it's the brochure. And uh, I believe there was an artist who made something very, very like that, who sued the shit out of the film and got some kind of settlement that meant they actually had to alter everything beyond the theatrical one to make it look less like his uh, his art, I think. I can't remember. I did see this in the cinema, but I do remember when I first got it on DVD thinking, well, that's slightly different, but I can't remember the distinction as to why. The film was the subject of legal action in Hart v. Warner Brothers in 1997. The claim was that the sculpture featured human forms in John Milton's apartment, closely resembling the ex nihilo sculpture by Frederick Hart on the facade of the Episcopal National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and that a scene involving the sculpture infringed Hart's rights under copyright law in the United States. Hart and the National Cathedral jointly initiated the action with an argument similar to architect Lebius Wood's successful lawsuit over the imagery in the film Twelve Monkeys. Defenses available to Warner were that the effect was designed without knowledge of Ex Nihilo or fair use. Which is it, guys? Is it you knew it and fair use, or you didn't know it? After a federal judge ruled that the film's video release would be delayed until the case went to trial unless a settlement was reached, Warner Brothers agreed to edit the scene for future releases, vindication, and to attach stickers to unedited videotapes to indicate that there was no relation between the art in the film and Hart's work. The settlement in February 1998 meant 475,000 copies of the VHS and DVD could go into rental stores and businesses. And oh shit, in 2014, Andrew Niederman wrote a prequel novel, Judgment Day, about John Milton arriving in New York City and obtaining control of a major law firm. I think he took it a little bit too literally. This is a very symbolic film. Niederman bought the book to Warner Brothers for a television series adaptation. Oh, for that prequel, we've always been wanting on TV. A musical play based on The Devil's Advocate is in development. <laughs> So the devil explodes into fire, turns Connie Nelson into an old tree. I, I was going to ask about that, actually. He, she says something about she's been waiting for Kevin for so long. Mm -hmm. It looks like when the the spell effectively breaks, this this uh, setup for reproducing the Antichrist is not going to happen. All right. She is hit with a wave of something that comes off of Al Pacino. She drank from the wrong grail. <clears throat> and... 
it, it basically ages mm. massively within the space of a few seconds. And I wondered if it is just the fact that he had the perfect daughter decades and decades and maybe centuries ago and has been preserving her life so that she can carry the child when he has the perfect son Good to go with her. God, mistake after mistake. Again, we got another movie there. All of the ones that were a mistake. Now, I'd like to think that this is actually an anomaly. This is Keanu Reeves playing it again. He is the one every time that the devil slash the architect can't eliminate completely. John's like, fucking again? Like, I spent so much time on this one. The 20th century, I was hot. I was doing stuff. The one before you was a Nazi and then Switzerland got involved. Yeah, several of my children were tried at the Hague. Yeah. But yeah, he, he throws a Couldn't massive... Couldn't do anything about that one. He throws a massive tantrum at the end, then morphs into Keanu Reeves. Also, they mixed in a little bit of Michael Corleone from The Godfather there in the uh, morphing effect. It's neat. But Keanu Reeves as Jesus. If you've ever wanted to see that, come see that here. He is effectively sacrificing himself. Although at the same time, he's also like, well, it doesn't seem like I have much of a future here and I don't want to be the person that destroys the entire world. So, Bye. boom. <laughs> but then, all the fire sucks back up again. And it was all a dream. Because we come back to the courthouse when Keanu was staring in the mirror and before he gives himself that grin. And the guy he was talking to, the reporter, who he's very chummy with, you know... This is a little Florida town. Everybody knows everybody. <laughs> finishes the conversation and walks out while Kevin's like, what the fuck? And the whole thing would appear to be... You could interpret it. I don't think this is actually the text of the film, but you could interpret it as Kevin going, what's the worst case scenario if I go out and defend Geddes and actually win this one? And then his imagination is so extensive <laughs> that he everything we see is Kevin's amazing mind. Knowing who Kevin is and what a basic bastard he is, I don't think that's the case. Mm. This, is, this is like really, really bad anxiety. <laughs> But it does seem that uh, the devil can do kind of an etch-a-sketch, I'll start again, to try to work on Kevin. Because he goes out, he says, I'm not going to re represent this weird guy who is still jerking off, dude. And... The whole time I was in the bathroom. The whole time. And that just confuses Heather Monterazzo. But I always, like, when I was, uh, uh, you know, in my teens, I was like, I wanted him to sort of point at Heather Monterazzo and go... Your prosecution lawyer is not doing a good enough job. I'm going to represent you now. And then have the judge say, you can't. You have details that would make it in, you ineligible for that particular role. Fuck. Well, the next person who comes along, I will. But either way, it's like he's he's finally found a, th a thing he can at least not do, whether he can find a thing that he can Yeah, do. the fact that by throwing the case in, he's potentially getting it dismissed anyway, <laughs> which means that Getty still doesn't end up getting punished for what he did. Yeah, Although point. one hopes that at some point soon there would be a retrial with a less competent defence lawyer. But that's the thing. Like, they've, they've tried him with this. If it gets thrown out, uh, that's down to... I, I don't know law. Actually, folks who do know law, let us know. What, what would actually have happened to the late 90s following the defence law deciding I can't defend the indefensible at this stage mm. and then he leaves 
the courtroom and everyone's like, oh my God, this is such a, such a big thing. Then that means, and then like everyone needs to turn around and go, so that means that guy really is a fucking child rapist. But everyone's focusing on Kevin and specifically his uh, journalist buddies. Like, this is 60 minutes. And it's like, is it though? <laughs> like, there's not really <laughs> a, small a story town Florida here. Florida lawyer has a crisis of conscience. Marianne, who is still alive, is like, you know, bye, Larry. Kevin says, I'll call you in the morning. But he's already been tempted with the idea of having 60 minutes and uh, getting the spotlight and getting into the media that way, which is very timely for the 90s. Mm. And then the journalist, as Kevin and Marianne leave, warps once again into John Milton, looks at us, the audience, and goes, ha ha, vanity, definitely my favourite sin. Which means he's getting Kevin through the same thing. He hasn't learned a fucking Jack ounce. shit. <laughs> no, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, oh, you think lawyers are bad? Wait till we talk to you about the media oh. sequel. <laughs> okay. The moral of the story is that there is still every opportunity to tempt Kevin again. You cannot just resist once to temptation, and then you're immune after a lifetime of being a vain, selfish prick. You have to develop an ass groove of general decency. You have to get into the habit of being good. Yeah. So that's it, folks. That's Devil's Advocate. <sighs> it's a mess. It's way too long. It's ham-fisted and clumsy. And it still falls prey to a lot of the 90s. Everyone's interested in courtroom stuff, right? Right? Whole new generations have said, not really. Mm. We will be back next week with another commissioned show. This one, I, I think we've gone down the evil road far too long. Let's go down to, to something extremely heartwarming instead. Uh, we're we're going to talk about a film most of you won't have seen, most of you won't even heard of, called Brigsby Bear which sounds like Paddington or something, but it's actually about um, overcoming our social anxieties, connecting with people we haven't connected with before, taking the course of our life in our own hands, getting over our own nostalgia, and being able to move on with our lives. I recommend every single person go out and find it and see it. You will thank me, and thank you to Name for commissioning that one. We had never seen it either, and it was totally worth talking about. And thank you to Greg for commissioning this one. It's been a ton of fun, and I've been wanting to talk about this one for a long, long time. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And vanity! <laughs> definitely <laughs> our favourite sin! <laughs> School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and I gotta give a big hoo to our $15 sponsors. I sound more like Grunkle Stan than I do Al Pacino. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman. Cut it out, Dad, I'm gonna do this one. I sound more like Hank Hill, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, 
Finbar and Nicole. Frankie Punzi. Oh, you huge hog beast. Knock it off, son. I'm doing the rest. Greg Downing. I sound more like Robert Lozier. Jameson Wright. Jesse Ferguson. Joe Crow. Joel Robinson. Jorn Clausen. Joe Gluck. Kevin Bailey. The Rain Chisholm. Marty Polmeyer. Matthew A. Siebert. Oh wait, I've got to be the Florida version of Keanu Reeves. Michael Haskell, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jugius. He probably eats a thousand pancakes for breakfast. He must have a high metabolism because that boy is skinny. Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayal, Sarah Montgomery, and Cat Esman. I see a red door and